Please do turn with me to the book of Genesis, and our text is found in chapter 6 and verse 8. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, God's only way. Well, the time that Noah lived in was despicable, degenerative, and depraved. It was a time where things got worse and worse. Evil, as the New Testament says, waxed worse and worse. Noah was the tenth patriarch. That's what we call those that lived before the flood. We also call Abraham and Isaac patriarchs as well. But Noah was the tenth in the godly line that led from Adam through Seth all the way to Noah. And he was born around about 3,000 years after creation. Noah lived in the godly line and six of the other ten patriarchs were still alive. That's seven when Noah was born. Bear that in mind because when the flood came, Noah was the only one of the patriarchs who were still alive. All the others had either died or in the case of Enoch they had been taken, translated. Well, I want to notice here the name Methuselah. Everybody knows Methuselah was the oldest recorded person in the Word of God. 969 years. Do you know what his name means? It was a one-word sermon. Everybody that heard the name of Methuselah would have wondered and thought, what is God saying through his name, Methuselah? When he is dead, it shall be sent. What will be sent? It shall be sent. He dies one year before the flood. But when he was born, 969 years ago, the name that was given to him means when he dies, it shall be sent. What will it be? Will it be Christ, the promised one? Or will it be judgment upon the world? You see, Christ comes first time with grace, second time with judgment. Well, we shall see how significant his name was when he is dead. It shall be sent. There would be one more year of final warning after Methuselah has died and the people would have been waiting. Is it the time? Will it now be sent? And it would. Well, let's look at the name of Noah. Methuselah, then Lamech, and now Noah. Noah's name, the tenth. 
It means rest and comfort. Just imagine his parents. Some of us have done this. What shall we call him or her? Some of the names, they come back year after year. Noah is one of the fashionable ones at the moment. Noah, rest and comfort. Why did Lamech choose that name? Well, we don't have to imagine, because verse 29, chapter 5, this son, this child, shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed, the burden of the curse is weighing down even on godly Lamech. Godly Lamech, who sees the explanation for the sin of the world, is the curse. He's a godly man. He says, when I look at the sin in the world, how do I explain it? I explain it because we have chosen the wrong way. And now God is giving us a daily reminder because of the toil, because of the difficulty. When we dig and the thistles and the thorns, it's hard. And our bones feel it. But Noah, this son, this child, he shall bring comfort and rest. Do you see? When Methuselah dies, it will come. Noah, he will bring comfort. And within one year, the explanation of their two names will converge in the ark, the message of grace, that in the midst of sin, depravity, degeneration, God is holding forth grace, mercy, love, peace to a wicked world. You see, even their names, one-word sermons, Methuselah, Noah. Well, I want to think of three things this morning. The first is the degenerating world. And I can't emphasize this enough. The chapter division between chapter 5 and chapter 6 comes exactly at the right time, even though verses and chapters are not inspired. But where they put it is exactly right. Look at the abrupt change. Verse 1. And it came to pass. The history of the godly line of chapter 5. Adam, Seth, Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch. All these godly people that called on the name of the Lord. That believed in a Messiah. That believed in a Saviour. And verse 1. It came to pass. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth. What we're going to see is there is going to be a second fall. Can I call it that? The first fall into sin, Adam and Eve. And now, a second fall of the whole of society, the whole of the world. 
will be affected by sin. The first point, a degenerating world. And we'll see three aspects. And I emphasize this because these three aspects are present in the world today. The world that we live in have the same three features. Let's look at it. Verse 1 and 2. What's the first feature which Moses records as he writes down the history of the world? He says, when men began to multiply and the daughters of men, the daughters were born unto them, verse 2, the sons of God. What does that mean? The sons of God means Christians, the Lord's people. The people that called on the name of the Lord, like Seth. The sons of God, the ones that he has bought, the ones that are called by his name, sons of God. Sethites, the church, the godly people, set apart, the one who say, we love the Lord, we're for him, we're on the Lord's side. They saw the daughters of men. Who are they? The children of Cain. The ones who say, we don't need God. We won't be called by his name. We are man's work. The daughters of men. What's happening? Marriage, here's the first point under this heading. Marriage is about to be abused, redefined, and abolished. What's happening? The sons of God, those who name the name of the Lord, will go and marry women who worshipped idols. Women who said, it's my body. I can do as I please. Women and men, it works both ways, who were driven by their eyes. They saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Marriage now will be about lust, desire, convenience. And it won't be about one loyal promise for life. God's way between a man and a woman. That's God's way. Now the sons of God, they make their choices by what they see and what they feel and what's convenient. The abuse of marriage. Not leaving mother and father. Not cleaving in an exclusive, loyal relationship. Not looking at a man, not lusting after a woman, whether it's online or in the flesh. And striving to be one flesh. That's God's definition of marriage. We've looked at it in Genesis 2. This is the complete contrast. The sons of God saw what was attractive, convenient, fair and took wives as they pleased. 
many wives, many husbands, one night husbands, one day wives. This was the world. This is what we see here in Genesis 6. The redefinition of marriage. Secondly, widespread violence. We can see this very clearly in verse 11, but we'll look at this another day. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. How did it happen? Well, the children that the sons of God and the daughters of men had became giants. They grew tall, the Nephilim, giants. What does that mean? People whose force and physical stature ruled the world. It was the king of the jungle. The man that was the tallest and the strongest. The Darwinian approach to life. The survival of the fittest. And that's what you get in the law of the jungle. The strongest, the tallest man is the ruler. Violence and force ruled the age. The man with the biggest weapons, with the longest spear, ruled the very opposite of God. God rules with truth and with love and with persuasion and kindness and argument and reason. Do you know that at the heart of sin is force. Force that says, my way, I'll have it now because I want it and I'll impose it upon whoever comes in my way. The second feature of this degenerating world, the abuse of marriage, widespread violence and force. But verse 3, there's a third feature. The rejection of all divine influence. The Lord says, my spirit shall not always strive with men. You see, up until now, in each one of the ten generations, God has been holding down evil, striving, arguing. Don't do that. Don't say that. Be loyal, be faithful, stop being violent, stop being jealous. The Lord says, ah, I will take off that suppression. I'll let wickedness grow like fungal spores spreading. I will not allow my spirit in the heart to struggle, to contend, to strive, to reason, to argue, to quarrel, to judge the hearts of men and women. And then look and see what happens. God has been holding a lid on it, holding it down. Now the holy influence of heaven. Heaven's holy influence will be taken away. For 120 years, 
God will now withdraw apart from to his people. And apart from eight, they will die out. And the godly will be no more. Apart from Noah and his wife and the three and their wives, God is withdrawing, taking away his holy influence. He's not striving, quarreling, contending, judging any longer in the hearts of men and women. And look what happens. Verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man for superlatives was great in the earth and that every intention, imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you get the picture? Can the Bible be any more clear? It was a cesspit. There was hardly a good thing left in the world, in the heart of men and women, just in eight souls. When Methuselah dies, and five years before that, Lamech, there's only eight souls left amongst Millions, some say billions, millions. How many children did they have? It says that Lamech had sons and daughters. If you do the math, ten generations to the power of four with limited death, you get to a very big number. And there's just eight left who call on the name of the Lord in prayer, worship, day by day, week by week. And God sees that the wickedness of man was great. A degenerating world. Secondly, what's God's response to this? My spirit will not always strive with man. Write them off. Destroy the world. That would be fair and reasonable. Do you know there was a man that went to Spurgeon one day, that great preacher of a hundred, hundred and fifty years ago, and he said, Spurgeon, pastor, I have a great problem. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. And Spurgeon said, oh, my friend, I have the same problem, but in a different way. The man said, oh, let me explain my way. How could God hate Esau? And Spurgeon said, oh, I have the opposite problem. How could God love fickle, feeble, weak, sinful Jacob? You look at the world here, and it reminds me of that saying. How could God love anyone? Isn't that the question you should ask your God this morning? How could God love me? Me? When I look at what I've done, what I've been, what I've said, 
The whole world, millions of people lay before God. Will he write them off? Will he destroy them? No. God can't do that. Because God, can I say this in respectful words, God can't help but to be merciful. He can't help but to be gracious. Grace flows from his veins. His blood is gracious. His life is gracious. But God looks at the degenerating world and he sees. God always sees. God sees wickedness. God sees sin. We live in a time where people don't mention sin. Sin is never a small problem. Sin is always the biggest problem. Sin is the issue. It's why we're here this morning. It's why we preach the gospel tonight. Because sin is the issue. This world, look at those people that died tragically yesterday in South Korea. Worshipping Halloween. Pressing themselves into a tiny street because their desires, their lusts, wanted to do something that God says, No! I'm for light, not for darkness. I'm for truth, not for hatred. I'm not for deceiving, I'm for revealing. God says, He will not destroy the world. But he must start again. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. He will destroy the sons of men. He must destroy the animals and the creeping things and the birds. Why? Now understand this carefully. God says, For it repenteth me. God can't repent. It means something like this. God was so grieved in his heart that he looked at the sin of the hearts of the world and the degeneracy and he is cut. He's grieved a parent. The holy eyes of heaven look down and see men and women killing each other. Men and women living in promiscuity and adultery and violence. And the eyes of heaven can't look any longer. And it grieved him. And do you know your sin and my sin, when the holy eyes of heaven look upon your heart, your life, my heart, my life, God has the same reaction. It grieved him. Cut his heart. What will he do? Well, let's look thirdly before we close. Verse 8. Is there a better verse in the whole Bible? The first mention of the word grace in the whole of the Bible. It will come again and again and again. But Noah. Noah. Just a man. A sinful man. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
Have you looked up to heaven? Have you looked to the eyes of the Lord? You can't see him but by faith. That's what it says in Hebrews 11, verses 7 and 8. Noah, by faith, he looked at heaven and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What does grace mean? It means time. God could have brought the flood immediately. But for 119 years, Methuselah's name would say, when I die, it will come. For 120 years, Noah would preach righteousness. And he would be the most unsuccessful preacher ever. There wouldn't be, apart from his family, which may have been converted and believed by faith before, he would have not one convert. The whole world rejected him. Never judge preachers by the numbers added to the church. Oh, we pray for blessing. But Noah was a faithful man, faithful in every respect, but he had little fruit to show time Time to repent, time to turn, time to prepare. You're being given time. What are you doing with it? Time to build an ark. The only means of salvation. From the time that Noah was born, 480 years would go by and then he gets the instruction and 120 years it takes him and... Some of those that have died, because they would be people of faith. I've got no doubt that Lamech and Methuselah and their families would have helped. Time. Time to disbelieve. That's a theme of God's word, isn't it? Where is your God? We can't see him, we can't hear him. And yet he's there. The only reason he gives time is because of grace. To give us time. Time for home calls. The godly were called in so that they didn't see the flood. Time for warnings. And then when we come to verse 8, what do we see of grace? We see that grace was personal. One by one. Noah. Noah found grace. Have you found grace? Are you relying upon your father? Your mother? They might have been Sunday school teachers, pastors, theologians, but unless you have found grace with God, there's no hope for you. Noah found grace, it's personal and it's exclusive. There will only be one ark. There will only be one way to be saved and delivered from the flood. The ark. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You notice this morning, the method of God is grace. The message of God is grace. 
and the messenger of God is Jesus Christ, pictured in Noah, pictured in the ark, with one door and one way to be saved. Jesus Christ, of whom it was said, he is full of grace and truth. A degenerate world, getting worse and worse. God's response, he sees the sin, he sees the problem, he withdraws himself. But there is hope, there is life, there is a way. There is a way in which man might rise to God's sublime abode. A Holy Spirit's energies come into the heart to bring us to life. And this is the way you need to find grace. If you don't know how to find it, come again tonight and we will see that God is near to all who call upon him. Noah called on the Lord and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Will you do the same? Will you find grace the only way? Or will you drown in sin? In chapter 5 we read of many dying. All the other patriarchs other than Noah and Enoch, who was taken, had died. But in chapter 6, we'll read that the people drown in sin instead of floating on the only life raft that there is. May the Lord bless us and help us to understand the significance of these words. Let's sing.